for. And it's not just smoke and mirrors. These things are are based in fact. Nick, I got to stop you for a second. I just now hit the start broadcast button. I oh, was. Is that what the thing says? Uh, not broadcasting. So Nick, I apologize. We got we got to kind of stick, take it over from the top. <laughs> so you can avoid the embarrassing bit about the dinosaurs now. So yeah, we don't have to tell anybody about that. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. But as usual, let's go through just a little bit of news and a little bit of thanks. And this is what I want to do first is I've got to say thanks to J.K. McKnight, who's been a previous guest on the show, and the entire Forecastle family for hosting me at Forecastle Fest this past weekend in Louisville. I had the opportunity to visit the Bourbon Lodge and see a bunch of awesome bands but you know out the bourbon lodge i got they had a whole rarities bar they had old forester birthday 2002 2008 a uh, bunch of different ones but one thing that i got that really kind of stood out was had the opportunity to try the barrel proof expressions that were done specifically for forecastle which was larceny barrel proof so if you've been paying attention on forums you might have seen it but the opportunity to try it so it was a really cool experience but I just want to say thank you again to do JK and Forecastle for allowing me to be able to come. It's always a fun time in Louisville here to be a part of it. You know, speaking of barrels and barrel picks, our next one is done and in the books. Ryan, myself, and three other lucky Patreon supporters went to Barton this past week and picked out a 1792 foolproof barrel. We had five barrels to sample from. They were all from December 2009, and they clocked in somewhere around 126 to 128 proof. So that means we didn't really need to water anything down. And when you were able to narrow it down, we went through a three-way blind, and we chose barrel number two at the end of the day. And this is going to be bottled at 125 proof, and we've named it a case of the Mondays. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you're going to have the opportunity to buy a bottle from this barrel here in the next few weeks. Now, other things we have going on, we also have an Elijah Craig in the works as well. The sign-up sheet is available on Patreon if you want to join us at Heaven Hill in two weeks, and we're going to be bringing four Patreon supporters with us. So make sure you go to patreon.com, either if you are already a supporter or want to sign up, make sure you do it quick, because if you're listening to this today, it closes at 6 p.m., and I've got to allow people to give enough time to be able to make travel plans. And, you know, we're really on a roll with these barrel picks and we're in the works of getting a lot more too. Uh, Jamesy Pepper Ride, Joseph Magnets, uh, Russell's Reserve, Kentucky Spirit and more. And this is all made possible by a new connection that we've made with Kegan Bottle out of San Diego. I've been working behind the scenes with Kegan Bottle to actually help give Bourbon Pursuit first crack at every barrel pick that comes to their 10 stores. So if you want your opportunity to help, you know, maybe be a part of these barrel picks or purchase one of these things that we're going to be doing, uh, you have to be able to support us on Patreon, right? It's hopefully one of those great causes that you can get behind. You get access to cool whiskey at the same exact time that uh, that we all get to choose, right? So make sure you go uh, and help support us on Patreon to do that. If you also, you live in a part of the country that doesn't have a great whiskey selection or maybe just a decent spirits collection, go to keg and bottle, K-E-G-N-B-O-T-T-L-E.com and you can shop their huge selection of over 700 plus whiskeys and it can be delivered right to your door. So make sure you go check out kegandbottle.com. 
You know, for today's show, I have to admit, when I learned about Nick and the idea of bourbon archaeology, I was a little hesitant. I thought it was just going to be a bunch of dilapidated and run down abandoned buildings, and I really didn't think anybody would really care about it. But after recording this, I and having Nick really explain to me the discovery of Bourbon Pompeii at Buffalo Trace, as well as several others, I found a new respect for this. For us bourbon and whiskey geeks, he's uncovering history and roots that had been long forgotten, and he's giving these places a chance to write their story in the history books. So you're going to enjoy this as someone who is looking to unlock more knowledge about the past and just about bourbon in general. And also, if this interests you, if this is something that you want to get behind and do on the weekends, get in touch with Nick, or you can send me an email, Kenny at bourbonpursuit.com, and I'll get you connected, and you guys can go and uh, start looking for artifacts on the weekends together. As usual, if you do like the show, make sure you support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bourbonpursuit, where, as I'd mentioned, you get access to barrel picks, coming in, being on barrel picks. You've got bottle totes, t-shirts, koozies, uh, patches stickers and more so make sure you come and look through there we got even more news to announce relatively soon as well so please pay attention for that if you are wanting to see what we do on the weekends make sure you follow us on all the social media channels facebook twitter instagram at bourbon pursuit and if this is your first time listening your fifth time your tenth time your hundredth time make sure you are subscribing go and do it on itunes or your favorite podcasting app and if you are more of a video person, you're watching this through Facebook or YouTube, go ahead, subscribe or like us on there. We'd very much appreciate it. With that, enjoy this week's episode. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof, 
And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of the Burp Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. Now doing take two with uh, with our <laughs> guest today. It was uh, a very funny thing that uh, we'd actually been recording for five minutes and I actually forgot to hit the broadcast button. So we missed some some good gems. We're going to try to recreate it. Uh, and as people are already saying on here, it happens to the best of us. But today is going to be a pretty interesting episode. And I get to not embarrass myself completely because... When we were talking, I was I was thinking of like, well, let's talk about the history of bourbon because this is something that everybody loves to talk about. We, you know, we have an affinity towards this because of old brands, because of um, uh, of of old sites uh, like Old Taylor and all these getting places that we get to go to. And I made the remark of like the only thing I know about history and and what we're going to be looking at is basically like the Jurassic Park of bourbon, which is completely wrong because this is not fossil. This is this is like it's a completely different side of of the science here. So I get to save myself the embarrassment of, of taking away that remark. Um, but with this, it's, it's going to be an interesting episode because we get to look at um, a lot of the different components that we necessarily didn't understand when it just comes to looking at the history of bourbon in Kentucky and kind of where we got to today. You know, we we hear all the time that, you know, at one point there were couple hundred uh, thousand distilleries all across Kentucky, you know, big and small. And, and then at one point in the, you know, the mid seventies and eighties, or should I say probably around the, actually say the nineties, you know, it got to, you know, like basically like the big five or the big seven, whatever you want to call it. Right. And now we have this other kind of uh, rise of, of new distilleries coming, but our guest today is going to give us an inside view into what we have going on with the, um, the history in the past of all these, defunct distilleries that are now buried uh, several feet underneath dirt. So today we have Nick Laracuente. Nick is a bourbon archaeologist, and I got him through actually looking at the New Orleans Bourbon Festival and trying to figure out, well, what looks unique, what looks like a good topic we can bring. And when I saw Nick's presentation uh, of what, what he wanted to talk about, I said, we got to get this guy in the show. So Nick, welcome to Bourbon Pursuit. Hey, Glad to be here again. <laughs> there we go. Take two. We're going to make this happen this time. So, right. um, you know, we'll start it from the top once again. And I kind of want to give people an idea if, if was it, was it bourbon that brought you into archaeology or was it archaeology that brought you into bourbon? How did that really work and started? How did you really get your, get your feet wet with really, you know, uh, brown water in general? Right. So it was a uh, archaeology first, uh, through, uh, through college it was mostly just, a. Uh, Maker's Mark and Coke didn't really think about bourbon that much. Maybe a little bit of wild turkey here and there. But uh, it was all about archaeology. I studied um, Spanish presidios, uh, forts on the coast of Georgia and Florida, and uh, looked at hurricanes and how they impacted those people in the 1500s or so, how you could kind of read those stories that had been erased by these storms. 
And so um, I came up here to Kentucky. I was going to school at the University of Kentucky for a little while before I started working for the state. And I was uh, coming in for a job interview in 2007 or eight, And I was driving um, by the old Taylor distillery, old Taylor and old Crow. And it was a super, super foggy day. Looked like um, it looked like a scene at a silent hill, probably. And when I saw old Taylor, it was still abandoned completely. I, I literally had no idea. I was like, okay, old Taylor distillery, who knows what they made there. And it wasn't until later. And I started Googling, realizing that there are really rich stories, not only with that, but with a lot of other distilleries. And um, I was looking for something for uh, like a research project I'm from Kentucky. I'm an army brat, my wife and uh, my mom's family's from here. And um, I wanted a reason to stay and do archaeology in my backyard and when I realized there were thousands of distilleries across Kentucky and archaeologists have looked at a grand total of like four of them, I was like, there's a lot here. There's a lot of stories to be told. And a happy side effect of that is then I got really into bourbon, uh, trying basically everything there is out there and becoming a, a big fan of the the brown water. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I think that's uh, it, it really helps to to know what you're researching when you're doing this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and that, and it's also, I mean, it's so complex. I mean, uh, the different expressions that you have now, different mash bills, different ways you finish or whatever. But if you look at the the basic steps, the, the fermenting, the distilling, the uh, storage in barrels, a lot of that stays exactly the same from the 1790s up until today. And so by really understanding all the different varieties and the equipment used and all of that, that translates into the materials and the archaeology, the garbage left behind. So pieces of stills or still equipment or whatever. And only by understanding that and the really tough task of doing as much research as possible and drinking as much as possible, um, you get to learn, you know, the types of things that distillers may have left behind. Uh, we'll, we'll get into some of those things that you left behind because I think it'd be really interesting because I want to talk about like if bottles are found, which I'm sure more often than not they are we'll get to that in a minute but i, I kind of want to think about what's what's the driving factor of actually doing archaeology of, of bourbon sites like what what is the i guess what's the drive or is there um an economic reason of why there is people wanting to to dig up these sites and learn more about them yeah so um i guess the, ba- the basic drive is the stories i mean archaeology is all about Oh, and if you guys hear the sound, is there a video on this or is it just there sound? is there is yeah. a little bit of video. So we get some, gonna, we get some parents. Yeah, you're going to hear these guys. They're starting to talk a little bit. But um, anyway, so um, it's all about the stories. Archaeology is very good at filling in the um, the gaps in history, things that have been forgotten either accidentally or on purpose. If somebody's trying to hide things, they're not writing it down in archives or whatever. So um, archaeology is a way of slowing down. We look at some of these places that we've maybe known forever. It's been in our backyard or we go to places like Camp Nelson or whatever. And the sites that have been forgotten that you can only learn through excavating, uncovering those layers of soil and those artifacts help you piece together a story that may have never been written down at all. It might be remembered by somebody. So one of my good friends, Sam Hawkins, is the grandson of Mel Hawkins, the last master distiller of Canada Dry. 
So there already I've learned, like, I never thought of Canada Dry, the ginger ale people, as bourbon producers before. But just south of Camp Nelson, on that bridge right when you cross the Kentucky River, their distillery was set up there. And Sam remembers as a little kid, some 50, 60 years ago, he would come down into that valley. The whole valley smells like yeast biscuits, and he thinks he's going to get something to eat. And he says he's disappointed because there's only whiskey to be found and has some great stories about his grandfather and whatnot. But that's, as far as I know, that's a story that's never been written anywhere. You can hear Sam tell it, but I don't think there's a book that talks about Canada Dry, at least not in that detail. As far as that economic aspect of it, I mean, the distillery really hinges on authenticity, right? It's like this is the um, the, the lineage, what you're drinking, uh, whether you can trace it back to old Taylor or whoever. Um, the fact that this mash bill stayed the same for so many generations, all of that is is very valuable in this industry. So the work that I did with um, Buffalo Trace over the last few years uncovering the bourbon Pompeii, um, we actually were able to figure out how – E.H. Taylor was making bourbon at that site. We found his fermenting bath, and um, they are getting ready to start producing whiskey the way that he was doing in 1882. Um, I don't know what they're going to bottle it as, but it's just fascinating to me that they're actually taking those steps and, and, and making this whiskey the way that he was doing it so long ago. And so I guess when I think about this, um, you know, when, when you're thinking about the, the authenticity of, of, of the bourbon and the mash bill and trying to tie all these all together, um, you know, is, is it a lot of distilleries that are kind of funding this? Is it the state of Kentucky? Like, where's where's the money kind of coming from to say, like, Nick, I'm going to put you to work and I want you to go start putting shovels in the ground and, and digging stuff up and trying to figure out, like, what distillery was here and and kind of how you retrace those steps. What, where's, where's the funding coming from a lot of this? <laughs> I wish there was a more funding for it. Um, at the moment, I've been doing archaeology of distilleries since 2010, and I've gotten paid only for the uh, Buffalo Trace project, and that was because it was tied to that. Um, it's been more of a, a labor of love. It's a research that I've been doing, and it's funded basically through my volunteer time, a little bit of uh, money coming from the Jack Jewett Historic Site in Woodford County um, to like buy equipment and stuff like that. And other than that, it's just me and a bunch of volunteers. So um, what we're doing with the Jack Jewett Site is they discovered that Jack Jewett, a Revolutionary War hero that retired in Woodford County, was an early distiller. He built a distillery um, on Craig's Creek in 1790 or so. And they were interested in trying to find that place. And so through the records, there's a, a lot of lawsuit documents where he, he traded his distillery in 1810 for 1,400 gallons of whiskey. And people never paid up. And so they sued each other. And over 10 years, there's landmarks like the distilleries here at this intersection, at this bend in the creek, that kind of stuff. And we're actually able to track down that 1790 distillery. The other fun thing there is that um, an aspect of the distilling industry you don't hear a whole lot about, except for uh, the new stuff that's coming out with the Uncle Nearest distillery, um, is that Jack Jewett used slaves to do a lot of his distilling for him. So there's stories there that have never really been unpacked before that we can start talking about. We also have things like um, we can estimate his mash bill and try to approximate what he was making back then and um, some things like that. But all of that was basically 
just a volunteer project with a small historic house site. They were interested in trying to bring tourists in that were interested in bourbon, but because they're owned by the fiscal court, they can't actually have like tastings and stuff like that on their grounds. So it's not like working with a you know typical distillery where every presentation, everybody's walking around with a glass and you have a tasting and all of that. It's very much we're talking about the industry without able to uh, enjoy some of the better parts of it, I suppose. But um, I mean, if there are any listeners out there that uh, have an idea of how to make this more of a full time thing, I'd be all ears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, guess start uh, pushing for those grants, right? I guess that's what you have to do next. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, but I am starting to. We're doing a, a new project with Buffalo Trace this year, um, working on some buildings that are associated with that OFC distillery. So, there's a little bit of um, funded work coming in. Well, good. And so I kind of want to talk about the uh, the size and, and kind of what the the magnitude of what you have to deal with is, right? Because we've all heard the history that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of micro distilleries all around Kentucky, um, you know, during you know pre-prohibition and stuff like that. So what was what was the size of that you know of of how many distilleries that are out there or how many sites that you know of that you all are actively working on to to rediscover or find artifacts from these 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 uh these distilleries as well well i think um if you look at kentucky histories as a whole we are definitely talking about thousands of distilleries i wouldn't call them uh, micro distilleries so much though um i'm using kind of the framework that michael veach and others have laid out in their histories where you talk about roughly moonshine stills farm distilleries and then industrial distilleries so industrial distilleries are like the maker's mark the buffalo trace the ones we see today but they would also probably include some of the smaller the craft distilleries like a wilderness trail or limestone whatever um because the main purpose of these places is to make as much whiskey as possible get it out to market you age it in the warehouses if you look back in the 1800s, uh, farm distilleries have a very different purpose. Uh, it's not clear that they're always aging their whiskey, if they ever did it all. What they're doing is they're turning corn into whiskey basically to distill money, especially in early Kentucky, because you're bartering or trading gallons of whiskey for things. If it's um, buying a distillery like with Jack Jewett, or you could be trading, say, 10 gallons for help um, raising your barn and whatnot, you're not aging the stuff you're putting in a stoneware jugs because if you put it in a barrel you lose something like 30 percent of your volume just instantly and they didn't really have that kind of luxury at the time so if you look at a trend uh looking like say through the 1800s in 1830s things become standardized kentucky becomes a full cash economy so you're paying real money for a brand you expect it to taste the same way every time you crack open a bottle of old crow or whatever so farmers are then standardizing their crops they're only producing say nb yellow corn varieties and giving that all to the distiller in exchange for money rather than distilling on their own property over time, as taxes and other things kind of come into place, um, the farm distilleries just kind of go out of business. They can't afford to be in it anymore because you either have to ramp up that production, paying all that tax up front. And so only the big boys really get to stay in the industry anymore. Or you turn to moonshine and the moonshine has just got I'm just really scratching the surface there because 
a lot of the times, if you look at Moonshine Histories, it talks about criminals, extreme violence, uh, the same way maybe you would talk about like uh, meth addicts or something today, right? But uh, if you look at some oral histories, especially around Prohibition uh, from Nelson County, they talk about these good people that have been dealt um, unfair hand, overbearing government. They completely understand why they're driven to moonshine because the entire county's economy is based on this industry that suddenly the uh, government's saying you're not allowed to do anymore. And it's completely unfair. It didn't make sense. So the language with that type of moonshining at that time and that place is very different than what you see in, say, eastern Kentucky. Uh, sometimes where they're talking about, oh, the moonshiners are also murderers or whatever. So again, very interesting stories to unpack there. And some of Kentucky's identity is really tied to these histories that have been forgotten over time. And it's just, it's, it's too simplistic just to talk about, all right, these guys have been distilling forever. Uh, Colonel Taylor, these other big names kind of took over and they made the industry live. I'd rather talk about the Eplers or the Frasers or some of these names that you never hear about and understand maybe maybe why we don't remember about them anymore. Or there's always the chance that we're going to find some innovation, something they did either on purpose or on accident that could create a, a very tasty variety that would succeed in the market today as well. Well, kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, one, you know, what what's your fascination with these people? Like you said, the Frasers, um, you know, what was like, take them as example or anybody else that you could say is uh, a story that that they have that has been forgotten in history? Well, the Epler Distillery is one that's uh, interesting. It's um, a farm distillery that's in Woodford County, uh, kind of directly west of Versailles as you go out toward Clifton, just north of kind of the wild turkey area. And um, that family, they operated through the Civil War, and they had like a, like a local notoriety almost. If you look at some of the Woodford County histories, they, the Epler brand of whiskey is actually is known very well. They were um, a brother, two brothers and a sister. They had no kids at all. And all three of them just spent their entire lives distilling. And so um, I'm still unpacking what their story is, but it's interesting that it's a, a family business. They they succeeded through the Civil War when others closed down because of high taxes or whatnot. Um, their brand was apparently loved. Uh, some of the, the smoothest whiskey ever made, according to some uh, newspaper articles. Maybe it was written by like their best friend or something. I'm not sure. Um, and then whenever they they all three of them died and, and pretty close together, the place was just left. And uh, somebody in the 1900s made moonshine there. But as far as I can tell, aside from that moonshiner, the last people that were there were um, the two brothers and their spinster sister. It's just like they, they dropped their stuff and a hundred years later, I'm coming and trying to figure out what they were doing. So lots of interesting things there. Haven't quite figured out how that one might tie in with say, I don't know, a craft distiller that's interested in in making these kind of, what would they be, like special edition, uh, like heritage edition, where you have the story attached to whatever their mash bill is. So um, I don't know. And some of the stuff could taste absolutely horrible by today's standards. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I guess that's a that's a good way to kind of put it because mm-hmm. you know there's there's been a lot of people you can you can get them at different bars around the country. You know, with the new Kentucky laws, you can go and find some pre-prohibition stuff and try it. Um, you know, I've tried pre-prohibition stuff and it's not that great. Um, and however, you had mentioned that you know when you're uncovering these things, you could find something that is a a unique way of distillation or something that is um, not necessarily. I guess you can say commonplace in today's distillery yeah. techniques. You know, have you been able to uncover something like that already? One of the interesting things that I'm seeing is um, there's the use of uh, gravity in the natural landscape. And I mean, we've replaced that with different types of technology now, but uh, the Epler distillery is built right on the side of a very steep hill and they've cut roads into the side of the hill to where they could bring a wagon load of like ground corn up top, dump it in, and then um, there's water up high on the hill as well that they have kind of dammed up. And they use that kind of natural force of gravity to start the fermenting up top. Then they put it in a, a still that's a little lower down so they don't have to, you know, use buckets to bring this stuff up at all. And then um, as it continues downhill, you can actually see like where their, their bottling area was right next to a wagon trail that goes out to the river. So um, that part of it's interesting, but we've kind of, we've kind of replaced that with different types of technologies, uh, green elevators or just pipes moving the whiskey from one place to another. So that's not really like needed as much as it was before, but at the same time, is there anything to that process that might've added different flavors or, or something? I don't know. The only way to tell there would be to, to actually replicate that process and see. And so when you're, when you're going through and you're looking at a site, I mean, do you have some sort of idea of, of how big of an operation this was at one point? So when you know, like, are are we going to run into a um, a still that is um, can hold fifty gallons, or is it a, a still that can hold five thousand gallons? Like, what, what's your what what's I, I guess what's the the thought process going in of of trying to figure out what am I what am I actually looking for? Because you have to do some sort of research beforehand, right? Right. And some of it varies because some of these early sites, like uh, the Epler site has like a single map and a newspaper article that associated with it is how we tracked it down. The Jewett one had a little bit more. So um, a lot of the learning about the site is uh, in archaeology terms, it's just called phase one excavation. It means you you step 27 paces, you dig a hole, 27 paces, dig a hole, and you see what kind of artifacts, what the layers of the soil are. And so like for the Jewett distillery, we dug um, 100-something holes and found uh, artifacts in 76 of them. So um, one of the things that I've learned, especially with these early sites, that you'll never find really is a still. Um, the stills were extremely valuable. So when you stop distilling, that's one of the first things you sell. The only places you really find the stills on sites is in moonshine sites. Whenever people um, ran afoul of the law and the people come in there with the axes and whatnot. So um, the things that we do find them is um, you can find a firebox where the still used to sit. And you mentioned metal detectors. Maybe in the first take of this, I don't remember. Yeah, but, just, um, <laughs> I don't know. If you're, I don't know if you're the guy on the beach, right? Like you always, yeah. <laughs> you always see that, that old dad on the beach with his with his metal detector looking for something. Like I didn't know if that was you all in the middle of Kentucky, like trying to find nails or something. Yeah. So I mean that that is one method that we use in uh, professional archaeology. Is that uh, there's a metal detector that um, you can tune to ignore copper and look only 
or ignore iron and look only for copper. And so if you think about a still that's been sitting maybe out in the elements for a while and there's like little pieces of it rusting off. And so we can actually find in some cases the, the firebox with uh, an area that's been burned inside because you got a constant fire going underneath that still. And the idea, even though we haven't found this just yet, is like little flecks of copper that would be around that. So what we found so far is we found areas where the firebox is there, but they've probably built some sort of shelter over top of it. You don't get as much rust, and uh, but yet that copper still is sold away. Um, the things that we also find are like the containers, right? You mentioned something about bottles earlier. We've never found like a, a full jug of whiskey or anything like that. Uh, most of the time, the stuff is valuable enough that unless you have uh, like somebody with butterfingers on the first day of the dead the job or whatnot we found a few broken stoneware jugs from where that person drops it and maybe they're not allowed to handle the jug anymore or something i don't know um but uh the other problem is is that since there are work areas just like with the industrial distilleries so like buffalo trace i did an excavation there in 2010 ish um where we actually found a reusable trash pit where stuff was coming out of the ofc distillery put in that trash pit they clean it out once or twice a week and take it back to the back of the distillery. So you're not leaving garbage like laying around your work area. These early distilleries, uh, the Jewett and the Epler, both, you're not finding a lot in the distilling area because as they have an accident, they drop a jug or whatever. They're picking that stuff up, throwing it in the creek, throwing it somewhere that's not like in that actual work area. So it's actually... I call them ephemeral sites. They they are very hard to unpack because they are there's so few artifacts there. At least most of the time, we got lucky with the um, the Fraser Distillery, which if you've seen the um, the neat the bourbon film, um, that's the the distillery that we're working on in my segment of it. And that one it qualifies as an industrial distillery. They had a big warehouse and like a railroad running stuff in and out of it. But um, it burned down right after Prohibition. And for archaeology, that's actually a good thing because that catastrophic event, it kind of packs everything there and they kind of clean off the top and try to rebuild. But as we unpack those layers, you can actually see that burn layer. We found like a piece of carbonized corn in there. And um, you can see some other elements of the, uh, the distillery that were just left in place. The uh, Bourbon Pompeii was the same thing. That they had three distilleries there the first one colonel taylor ripped down and just kind of left some remnants of it there the second one burned down in a freak accident where lightning struck and just burnt the whole thing down and then the third one he built just around there so we can unpack those catastrophic events and see things where they were left a little bit better than some of these where they're maintained and constantly cleaned no, I started to ramble there for a minute. No, no, it's, your question. No, it's perfect. It's, perfect man. It's, it's great. I mean, it brought up a lot of other things, you know, too. It was like one thing, what I want to go back to is another thing that you had said about, you know, dig a hole, move 27 paces, dig another hole. Now, how big are these holes? Like, I know you're just not putting a shovel six inches in the ground and going, nope, nothing here. Keep moving on, right? Like, <laughs> like what's that process? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, 
the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Yeah, it's um, it's a little bit bigger than a post hole for uh, like a fence post or something like that. It's a, about the diameter of a, a round shovel, and you go until you hit either bedrock or there's uh, something called subsoil where um, you're finding those Jurassic Park fossils and all of that. We're only interested in the human stuff, so we stop where there, where humans no longer um, impacted the layers. So it looks different depending on where you're digging at. So. With Buffalo Trace, they have a lot of flood events, and so the bottom layers where humans no longer um, were on that area uh, are just kind of clean sand. Well, in Woodford County, there's a lot of clay, and uh, for the Jewett, the Epler, and the Fraser Distillery, the subsoil is all this kind of there's fossils in it, lots of stone, lots of clay, and those holes that we're digging there are maybe 10 inches deep, maybe. So you're not really finding anything beyond 10 inches. Is that, that pretty safe to say then? Um, it depends on the distillery because uh, with, again, Buffalo Trace, we were finding stuff 10 feet, 12 feet deep, uh, but there we were also working with backhoes and it was inside a building where they had to kind of build up uh, where it slopes down into the river. So uh, there are definitely places in Kentucky. Um, I could think of there's an excavation that happened in the nineties in Owensboro where there was stuff deep that they found with the backhoe. But at the same time, I know of archeologists that have looked for um, distilleries along uh, Beargrass Creek in Louisville and they trenched right where the maps show there should be warehouses and whatnot, and there was absolutely nothing. And it could be because the rock and all of that was so valuable that they recycled it, used it in another warehouse or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the stuff can be very deep. It just depends on the area of Kentucky you're working in. Right. And so let's let's talk about some of those, just the archaeology of these forgotten distilleries. You know, if we uh-huh. if you look at, um, by the way, for anybody that's, um, you know, trying to listen and pay attention. I'm actually looking through his presentation that he gave me at, uh, from New Orleans Bourbon Festival, and I can see some pictures of um, somebody standing inside. It looks like a, a concrete vatted tank, um, basically about up to somebody's neck. 
Um, there's also a like a heat map of Jamesy Pepper that, that kind of shows what the structure looked like. So kind of talk about what it looks like to to start digging in and finding some of these pieces. Well, I mean, um, you're basically uncovering a puzzle. You don't know what the whole picture looks like or if you even have all of the pieces of the puzzle or how many puzzles you have. Because, like, for example, the Jewett Distillery, when we first went out there, the only thing you can see is two uh, dry-laid stone structures, uh, and it's just, like, uh, two layers of rock coming up out of the ground. So you can kind of have an idea of, like, what the uh, width and length of this building was, but you have no idea how tall it was and have no idea what the function is. The other thing you can see in um, that particular distillery is uh, there's this thing, it's a, a big ditch, it's called a mill race. And so he had a grist mill where he would divert the flow of the creek and make it turn a, a wheel that would grind his corn for him. And so you could see those three elements. And other than that, it's just like normal woods, um, very thick, very thick woods. Um, so as we start to grid out the site, you dig that first hole and then you walk the 27 paces or whatever. And it's almost like playing battleship because you're doing presence absence, right? So you're trying to see, all right, there's nothing around these distillery, uh, the actual foundation walls. Why is that? And could be because of the cleaning. As we move north a little bit though, what we found was a break room of sorts. So we found a lot of cooked bone, some uh, knives and other utensils. And you could actually see in the bone these saw marks from where somebody had like uh, basically made beans with a, a ham bone in it. And they, they dumped it there whenever they were done and they burned other kinds of garbage and whatnot there as well. So we were joking that that's maybe the break room because the date of the artifacts, like the, um, the way the fork looked, it is a early 1800s fork. So, and that was the time the distillery was working. But I mentioned that thing about the other types of puzzles. Um, 50 to 100 years after that place operated as a distillery, it became a place that was kind of, um, there was a house nearby and somebody's burning like their garbage out there in that area. So we found hundreds of buttons to close where somebody's probably like dumped off clothes. They rotted over time, more garbage burnt on top of it. And then in the top of all of these layers, as we're unpacking this, is um, there's these big ruts because the um, the roads that they cut into the hill, again, for that historic use for the uh, moving the bourbon down to the river or to put stuff in the top of the grinder or whatever, um, they're very good for four-wheeling. So there are all these ruts where people would four-wheel and get air on these uh, terraces on the hill, and they would run up the site, too, as a result. So lots of different stories there not all of it related to the distillery but if you approach it kind of surgically and take these pieces apart you can say all right in this area two feet down or whatever this is where we have the distillery stuff and we approach this a little bit more carefully so i think um if you look in the presentation and maybe you can stick a picture of this on your side or whatnot there's a larger unit um where you can actually see me well maybe it's not in this one I'll send you a picture of it. We open up these things that are um, sometimes they're like telephone booth sized holes. So they're like one by one meter or one by two meter. So when you use that shovel testing to find an area that's interesting, you can open it up to look at those layers a little bit better. And I'll send you some pictures of what that looks like. And, and so what's the, um, I guess when you're, when you find something like what's your Eureka moment, right? I guess you could say, 
when you when you found something or is you because you had mentioned that there was somebody that that went through all the the banks of a creek where there should have been uh, a distillery yet there was just no sign of anything that was ever there so what's that sort of eureka moment like for you well i mean there's a few eureka moments so the first one with the jewa distillery we spent months looking for this thing like there was all these documents we had all the landmarks i actually walked um three miles down the creek looking for spots that it could be and then when we found the spot that it was most likely to be we have a bunch of people out there and we're digging a whole bunch of empty holes i think like the first day i don't think we found anything at all so i'm sitting at home sweating that night being like i hope there's something there else i'm wasting everybody's time so that first eureka moment is when we find the first artifact and we know there's a site there so i don't even care what the artifact is i think i think for the jewett site the actual the first artifact we found was like a button that popped off of somebody's pants as they were like sliding down the hill and that was good enough it had nothing to do with the distillery itself ultimately but you know there's something so then the second eureka moment is um whenever like we're looking for this thing it's like all right the distillery's here we know these artifacts are associated with the distillery and um it's not until we find like a piece of a stoneware jug or a piece of copper or something like that so at the jewish distillery is a fragment of the stoneware jug which you can put lots of different things in stoneware jugs but that was one of the indicators of uh, whiskey at that time because they're putting it right in those jugs and we had this account of this guy that would hitch rides in a wagon down to the river in a wagons full of these jugs but um I got a chance once in maybe it was 2009, maybe 10. I don't quite remember, but I got to w- work at the original still side of Woodford Reserve. So they got a big sign up. It's on the other side of the lagoon from where the still is now. And we were not finding anything there. It was like a few nails, a few like really early bricks and, and not finding anything. And was this and the, then, was this the pepper distillery? Um, no, this was, uh, I don't have anything about this in the presentation, but, uh, the pepper house was there up, up the hill and university of Kentucky was working on the pepper house, but, uh, they let me go and look at the still. And, uh, there we actually found a copper hydrometer. It was all bent up. Obviously you couldn't use it anymore, but it doesn't get any more, um, uh, it doesn't get any more distillery than that. I mean, there's really only one purpose for copper hydrometers. So that was a big eureka moment for me. But yeah, I was about uh, to say, it sounds it sounds almost a little <laughs> more exciting than finding a button or a nail or something like that, right? Because mm-hmm. a button mm-hmm. or a nail could be to anything, um, but you know, there's it's only one reason why you'd have a hydrometer sitting around. Yeah, exactly. It was similar to like at Buffalo Trace. I mean that the OFC distillery excavation was like a once in a lifetime thing. Cause there you have the actual fermenting vats that Taylor made that were just buried and forgotten by a concrete floor. And I mean, after exposing those things, like, because they're just sitting there and we use these concrete saws to cut open the, uh, the floor and there's a void where everything that filled that fermenting vat settled over time. So we cut a big square out and the concrete just falls into darkness. And the con- the construction workers are like, do you want to go down there? I was like, ah, <laughs> not so much. So we ended so up like, exposing the rest. So. so this is how like Ghostbusters 2 started with like the slime going underneath the city or something, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's definitely a few moments. But a lot of it also comes whenever you like you step back. You're looking at the hundreds of artifacts. Like for the Jewett distillery, you found – 
1176 artifacts and when you start to look at like all right the groups of these things and you got the kitchen stuff all focused in this area or the stuff that might be distillery oh focused in this area seeing that big picture and that puzzle you've been working to to recreate over the last year or so that that's a huge rewarding moment there yeah i was about to say i was like um I want to talk about the OFC stuff here in a second, but like with the, the Jewett distillery, what, what kind of, you know, you said this is all pieces of a puzzle. So at this point, what, what is that story starting to come together? Like what can you gather from it from either a family history perspective, the history of the distillery, like anything else that, that is sort of coming together from it? Yeah, I'm in the stage right now where we're writing the report. It's like, this is what all this stuff means and what the next steps would be. So um, just like making good bourbon, this this takes time. It would go a little faster if it was actually funded, but, you know, whatever. Um, so <laughs> We'll get there. Yeah, yeah we'll get there eventually. It'll work itself out. So the stories that we're uncovering, we get people involved. Um, well, I guess, okay, let me back up a little bit. So the way that we went about this, where we opened it up to where anybody that was interested in whiskey history or being outside could participate, that in itself was interesting because we learned about other distilleries, but we also had people that were descendants of Jewett. So his great, great, great granddaughter actually came and worked with us and had some documents from their family archives or whatever. And it's interesting having artifacts that he had maybe worn. We had this button, the big copper button with 13 stars on it. And people were like, well, maybe that came off of his Revolutionary War uniform. We don't know. But just the, that idea with her like holding it and like processing it in the lab was very cool. But as far as the actual stories coming out of it too, when you start to talk about this is what Jewett was doing, one more aspect of his life. He was using slaves to distill. We don't know their names, but just the fact they're here, we can talk about that contribution to the industry and maybe how that influenced some other things, perhaps. But um, we can also, we've also discovered his mash bill. So in that um, series of litigation papers, um, they actually have a proportion of um, the reason that we're not paying Jack his 1,400 gallons is he promised to give us the grain. And we want the grain in these proportions, and they list them out. So we have – this is where the water source is because it springs there on the site. We have the proportions of grain, and they're using wild yeast from that valley to just get everything going. And we could theoretically recreate Jewett's bourbon and or bourbon, his whiskey, and put it in a stoneware jug, and that, that could be interesting in itself. Um but I think the other payoff of all of this too is just a lot of people are starting to see like this is how you go about doing archaeology. This is the this is the history that's like buried like right in underneath our feet most of the time. And since the industry intersects so many different things, like you can talk about evolution of technology and and tracking how stills progress over time or whatever. You can also talk about Kentucky's integration into global markets with um, early whiskeys, even Jack's whiskey was shipped down to Louisville, uh, packaged by rectifiers, sent off to New Orleans or whatever. And then you also see where they're participating in the global market where you have some Chinese porcelain that's there on the site in the middle of nowhere, Woodford County from 1790s or so. Um, you can also talk about intersections of um, like religion, the influence of the temperance movement, things like that. So it's 
we are making a story, but I think the more important thing to me is we're making a platform that we can use to jump off and talk about archaeology of all of these other things in Kentucky, which ties in a lot with what professional archaeologists are already doing. Like we found archaeologists in general have found 35,000 archaeological sites around the state, everything from 13,000 years ago to 50 years ago. And this is a good way to provide like an introduction to people that have maybe never heard about that. You fall in love with urban, you get involved with urban archaeology, and the next thing you know, you're learning about the beginnings of agriculture in Red River Gorge. So um, there's a lot of different things going on. So with that, we'll kind of shift in the, the kind of last phase of this, and that's kind of looking at the the poster child of bourbon archaeology right now, which is bourbon Pompeii at, at Buffalo Trace. You know, you had kind of mentioned of, of you know, opening, you know, taking a concrete saw and, and creating the openings, but kind of give an idea of, of what was the process of uncovering that a little bit more in depth in really, because today you can go there and you can see, uh, you can walk around, uh, you can, you know, some of it's sort of gated off. You can kind of look around, but what was the, what was the process of uncovering that? And what did you all really find when you were doing it too? Yeah. So, um, the way the project started was they decided that they wanted to put that building to use for, um, like wedding reception space, that kind of thing, something that they could rent out and get some income from. And, uh, the building itself, the wall that faces the river was starting to slump into the river because of different moisture issues and whatnot. So what they were going to do was they were going to repoint that whole wall, like take all the mortar that's crumbling and get good mortar in between the stones and the brick. And that was going to help stabilize it. In order to do that, you rip up that floor and you would dig down the foundations and get all the stuff that was kind of 10 feet underneath. When they ripped up that floor, they started running into old foundations that had been, um, basically buried in concrete by Shinley distillers in 1952 or 53 and forgotten over the last 70 ish years. Um, so they called me at that point because I had done uh, some work for them in 2010, uh, looking at uh, what they call the old Taylor house now. And they're like, we found something old on the distillery. And I ignored the call at first because, I mean, they're always finding something old. It's, <laughs> it's, I, like, I, it's old news at this point, right? Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, it's a, they probably found a bottle or something like that, right? So, um, but then they called back and uh, Dennis and uh, Meredith were both like, no, you seriously need to get over here and look at this. And so when I went, um, if you've ever been to Bourbon Pompeii, the, the whole area where the catwalks is, um, that area had been pulled up. You could see kind of the tops of all the different foundations that are still there now. And um, when I was uh, went in there and looked, it's like, all right, these things have, uh, we call them stratified deposits in archaeology jargon. Basically, it looks like a, a nice, neat layer cake. So if you were to go from the surface going deeper, each layer goes a little bit further back into the past. And since it's not all mashed up, like something has been subjected to a kid's birthday party or whatever you can actually start to unpack those layers and say all right this layer four feet down is 1882 to 1885 and we know that because of this and this so that stuff is like is super sexy when you're, when you're looking at it as an archaeologist so they gave me a weekend they're like we need to stay on a project we need to uh you can take a weekend document whatever this is and then we need to keep moving with it and so at, at the end of the 
weekend, I was talking about the dirt layers to them and I was all excited. And I happened to mention like the brick wall that you see here in the picture is uh, where the fermenting vats are. And one of them is like the kind of record scratch. Right. And they're just like, wait a minute, what you mean? Fermenting vats, like those things are still there underneath the floor. And that's when the project changed. It was no longer really wedding reception. It was more like Mark Brown told us to, to keep digging until we got to China. We had to find basically everything that was there. So we exposed all of those fermenting vats. And that's when um, Carolyn Brooks, their historian, she actually found the uh, the lithographs. Uh, it was in a book that's been around for a little while, right? But when we're looking at it again and we see those images that actually have the fermenting vats going down that room, we're like, this is extremely accurate. This is like somebody was just sitting here watching this stuff happening. It's even got like architectural details, right? So um, over the next year or so, since I have a full-time job with the state, I, I popped out during my lunch breaks and on weekends and spent about a year working on uh, unpacking what the stuff is and documenting the artifacts and whatnot, and um, then helping put that exhibit together to tell the story of uh, how Colonel Taylor influenced those distilleries and what's still standing there today. Um, and then the bonus of it is we actually have enough to start recreating that whiskey. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. If you go there now uh, on a tour, they're actually starting to reactivate one of those vats. And I'm pretty sure the idea is that it's going to be relined in copper and actually be bubbling away, fermenting while tourists are coming through and you can look down on it from the catwalk. Um, I don't know what they're going to, what they're going to call it. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get some of it. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> they owe you, they owe you. Mark, Mark Brown at least says you have a bottle, right? So. Yeah, exactly. At least give me, a, let me put my finger down the bat and taste that at least. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool, man. I mean, that's, that's super exciting because it's something that, you know, for the most part, I mean, if you look at the, just the way that modern, just modern, um, I guess you can say building and every construction. I mean, it's, it's pretty much, you know, like tear it down, start building new. Right. And, you know, keep forming the foundation, keep going on top. We, we hardly ever start thinking of digging. Right. And I think it was really cool that they had this idea to allow you to start going in there and start uncovering a lot of those things. Uh, other than the vats, like, was there anything cool that you also uncovered during this process? Well, we actually found pieces of that copper sheeting inside the vats. So, what I'm thinking is uh, Shinley Distillers, whenever they decommissioned the building, they recycled all of that because it's, what, um, eight fermenting vats that were lined. They're 14,000 gallons a piece. That's a lot of copper sheeting that you can use for something else. So um, you can actually see axe marks in some of this uh, in some of the copper sheeting uh, where they're trying to, to take it all out to recycle it. So we found a lot of that. Um, and then we also found uh, a few pieces of um, their uh, copper spigots that were used in some of the plumbing around. So uh, it was interesting because, I mean, really, you could put the number of artifacts that we found on the table there in front of you, it was maybe 100 or so. And I think the reason for that is, as an industrial site, again, you have that problem keeping everything clean. And so uh, we're not finding a lot of um, a lot of junk in there. Lots of lots of soil, lots of stone, a few bricks, but uh, not a lot of uh, really um, unique things aside from that copper and the copper spigot. But those things by themselves was enough to tell like a tremendous story, which is interesting. 
I guess the, the last question I'll ask is how do you reverse engineer a mash bill sometimes, right? Because it says that a lot of times you're able to figure out like what was that grain bill that they were using? Um, you know, you had mentioned one time of kind of like looking at a newspaper article and, and kind of, uh, I guess you'd say reverse engineering that, but is that typically the way it's done or is there a, a scientific way of, you know, scraping a, inside of a pipe and finding the yeast strain or like, I don't know what, what that really looks like. Well, I think uh, part of the problem is going to be that uh, there's so many different, um, what do you call them, I guess species of yeast, that um, if you do a culture, um, you're going to come up with uh, who knows what. It could be the stuff that was actually in that uh, particular um, uh, still, or it could be something that's just wild and got in there and contaminated it. Yeah, so there is that problem with the yeast. But as far as the mash bill itself... um, most of the time it's going to be through documents because you can get the proportions then if i was to find say just a piece of a still that had residue from the last run in it um that stuff you could say all right there's barley in this there's rye in this there's there's corn in this you might be able to talk about the variety of corn but you're not going to be able to talk about the proportion of those grains to each other which is the critical part for the mash bill right so um, you might be able to find something like an unusual species of corn that was used before that's not anymore. But that proportion is really something that we need the archival documents for. So you can get it through lawsuit stuff like we do with Jewett, or you can get it through, um, say, industrial senses, like, or when somebody dies and they do like an estate inventory, and it's like, all right, you have... Um, I don't know, this many bushels of rye, this many bushels of corn. You can get close to approximating things that way. Interesting. Oh, cool. Well, I think uh, you know, that's all the questions I have. I mean, that was it was really interesting because, you know, it was a it was a take that we've never done on this show before of of looking at uh, another angle of history with bourbon. And I think it was really cool and, and definitely appreciate you coming on the show. I want you to give our listeners, you know, access or tell them what your your Twitter handle is or anything like that of where they can find you publicly and they can follow you and maybe how they can help, uh, you know, give some, give some funding to, to help these projects will go along too. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, my Twitter is, uh, is at archeologist and I'm on Instagram at bourbon archeology. span And if you Google the Jack Jewett archeology span project, you get all the uh, contact info for that volunteer run project that I mentioned earlier. And um, the Woodford County Heritage Commission and what people that kind of oversee that, uh, they would always be happy to take donations to help that thing run, like help us do exhibits or pay for volunteers meals and that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just give me any time through social media or whatever and uh, we can definitely chat or once we start up again this year, anybody that's interested in hiking outside or bourbon or archaeology in general is more than welcome to join the Jack Jewett Archaeology Program and actually get their hands dirty doing some of this stuff. And he'll let you use the metal detector. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good deal, Nick. I want to say thanks again for coming on. Uh, make sure you follow Nick on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Make sure you follow us as well on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bourbon Pursuit. If you like what you hear, make sure you support the show on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. We've got a lot of cool things such as patches, stickers, koozies, bottle totes, and more. Uh, monthly giveaways, access to barrel picks, and stuff like that. So go there. You can help donate, help support the show, but get a lot of cool stuff in return. 
If you want every new show beamed to your inbox, go to birdpursuit.com, scroll down, you'll find a little email button. Go ahead, register every new email, or sorry, every new episode will be beamed straight to your inbox. If you have any other show suggestions, fan mail, hate mail, whatever it is, send us at the duo, T-H-E-D-U-O, at bourbonpursuit.com. Nick, thanks again for joining. And it was really a pleasure to definitely get to see this different angle of bourbon. And awesome. We'll, yeah. And we will see everybody next week. Thank you.